0: Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. The Packet Pushers are live streaming with cloud networking vendor Alkira on April 22nd, 2021. Sign up, attend live, and get your questions about clean sheet networking for the cloud era answered. Visit packetpushers.net slash live to register. That's packetpushers.net slash live Hey, everyone. Glad we were all available for this meeting. My name is Ethan, and I'm the security engineer for this project. You folks are the application owners, the lead developer, and business stakeholder. Okay, starting with you, business human, can you tell me which departments need access to the app? You are not sure. Okay, well, should we expose it to the internet? Not sure of that either. Ah, okay. Well, can we agree on whether or not remote VPN users should be able to hit this app? You are not really sure on that. Okay. Ah, you're not helping me out much here, but uh, maybe you know if the app's data is governed by PCI, SOX, or HIPAA. Not certain, but maybe HIPAA, you think. Got it. That's that's a start. That's something. We'll, uh, we'll turn to you then, developer human. Can I at least build the firewall policy because you know the specifics about the app? Because, hey, you built it, so I'm sure you know the answer's right. Well, I mean, one of those things is ports. What are the TCP or UDP ports your app talks on and to which hosts? Not sure what I'm asking about. Okay, um, there's a database backend for the thing, right? W- what is the port profile there? Is it standard SQL stuff or probably SQL, but again, you're not sure. Can I run a sniffer and just figure it out, you ask? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I can fire up the sniffer. I'd love, I love that. Good job, everybody. I guess I will just get that sniffer fired up. And if you need anything, follow the sound of quiet sobbing punctuated by the occasional scream. Of course eventually you get there right you figure out the app you get a firewall policy stood up and it mostly works but who owns this policy now networking security the business the dev team and where does this policy live does it live at the edge of the network in the middle maybe in both places because do we trust the edge what if the app is deployed in containers and there's a lot of container to container chatter that never even sees that edge firewall? Well, how do you manage that? And then what happens when the application profile changes? Cause it's gonna, do you run a sniffer again? There's gotta be a better way to keep track of all this, right? Our guests today are Ken Salenza and Brett Likens from Network to Code. And they've been thinking hard about how to manage security policy in modern IT infrastructure. We're gonna get into Sources of Truth application modeling, approval workflows, and more, all in the context of automation. So, Ken, I want to start with you because this is all your fault, buddy. Um, you wrote a post on the Network to Code blog entitled Application Dictionaries. Uh, so just so that people have context about what we're talking about here, give us the the, the elevator pitch, the 10,000-foot view of what you mean by application dictionary.
1: Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Uh, it's uh, essentially the source of truth and data model that's associated with your uh, your applications more so than the firewall policy. Essentially, what I'm trying to do is disaggregate the the model for the intent of applications and the connections in between them versus the actual policy, which is you know essentially a build artifact, meaning is just the configuration that's pushed based on the source of truth. But not currently, we really take a uh, firewall security policy-centric view of the world. So I know that's a lot to kind of uh, digest uh, on a high level, but that's the, the the elevator pitch
0: there. Well, you said firewall-centric view of the world, and we do. Those of us that do uh, do firewall management tend to think in the sense of we have a firewall, there's a policy we have to build that often comes in five-tuple format. And so we, we're trying to get those questions answered, but but in actuality, what's happening is an application-to-application communication happening at a higher level. So if I understand what you're saying, you're you're taking an, an application dictionary is a big idea of breaking down these communications into the component parts so that you can build a policy out of those component parts.
1: Exactly. And those two primary uh, points are application definitions and then communications between those applications. And, you know, you you quickly, you know, run into issues where what defines an application for a user community within a, a campus environment, as an example. And there's a lot of data modeling issues and tricks that you have to kind of work through. But nonetheless, it, you know, it's it's something that's solvable given enough time, I, I guess.
0: Okay, so let me play contrarian here and ask you kind of a hard question. H- how solvable is it actually? And what I mean by that is now we have zero trust, now we have, like I brought up in the intro, things like container-to-container security where you, those are com- communicating directly with one another. There's maybe not a security surface that they, that they traverse. Well, there's, there's always something, right? There's always a place you can put a checkpoint. But not the brand in general, the yeah. checkpoint. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so how solvable is it? Because it seems like where we do security has gotten spread out all over the place now.
2: Yeah, uh, I think, uh, and this is Brett. I, I think one of the things that that I've seen is when you have an application that's spread into all these different enclaves. It's in a container. It's in the cloud. It's in these different locations. Under the hood, the same networking protocols are still getting used. Those applications are still establishing TCP, UDP ports, and sending traffic across that. And so, where the application lives is sort of independent of. What communication flows does the application need? Because until that is understood and documented, you even if you could, you know, you could insert something bet- on the the control plane of your container solution to to firewall traffic between the containers. You wouldn't know where you needed to put it or what it needed to do once you inserted it if you didn't have that information to begin with. Of how are these containers in your application interacting? You know, is there a database sitting over here and it needs SQL ports open? Is there you know whatever it needs? And this is this the front end web container and it needs eighty and four four three whatever it may be. If you haven't done the work up front to profile your application and built this dictionary of, of details. And, I, and we'll get into who the you in that conversation is, because that's a whole separate point. Mm-hmm. But um, if you haven't done that up front, all of the, the bells and whistles, fancy solutions for securing your container infrastructure, they don't do you a lot of good without that data.
1: Well, So I just want to just kind of um, interject there for, like, how solvable is it, I think is, is definitely a good question. I, one counter question to that, which is not solving it, right, is going to cause, there's an extreme amount of technical debt, because, and I'll, I'll just give some, some examples here. So you know containers like you know Kubernetes and whatever and whatever orchestration systems and clouds you know cloud systems provide their own security. You know you have AWS security groups and various different methods of actually control you know, having control points. Traditionally, the the method was just to rely on the networking team and the firewalls in between to to house that, and that that's not gone away, right? And so you have this disaggregated you know choke points or checkpoints as as you mentioned, Ethan. Where you can actually do policy enforcement. Now the problem is, is no one's giving up the reins in terms of it's just duplicated. So if there's policy enforced in you know, in Kubernetes, it's also enforced on the network as well, right? And and it's it's redundant. It's kind of, you know it's, it's a tremendous amount of technical debt that's kind of associated with it. Mm. But to get back to your 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 question though, is you know how how reasonable. I really think, I mean, there is a hard data modeling challenge there, but I truly think the hardest thing is the cultural change and the cultural shift for moving ownership of the rules from solely on the security engineer to maintain all this data across all you know facets of the infrastructure to the and pushing it back out into the business, into the application owners, the business owners, the you know, the, the programmers, et cetera. And having that shared ownership there.
0: We're up to three problems now. Then, okay, this is interesting because we've got we've got the application profile. We've got uh, to understand the communication that needs to happen. We need to understand secondarily the endpoints uh, across those ports who should uh, be communicated with. So that endpoint to endpoint communication. Now, a third problem, Ken, you've brought up is the human side of it, organizational side of it. Now who's responsible for all of this? Because historically in most of the shops that I've been tied in with, it's been, you know, for lack of a better word, my or the IT infrastructure team's problem to figure out that security profile, to create that firewall rule set or whatever that profile is made up of, that policy is made up of, and then maintain that thing going forward. Ah, it's time for the annual firewall rule audit gosh, are we using the rules in this group? Well, they haven't been hit for a while. Does anybody actually know? And it seems to be incumbent on, you know, the IT infrastructure team to figure that stuff out, when in actuality, we aren't the ones that actually know the answer to that question. Someone else in the organization does, but how do you get those answers? So, okay, now we defined a lot of challenges here, Um, three different problems, uh, I don't know if it was Ken or Brett, but one of you guys made the point of the the redundancy that you can have. Because if you're if you've got firewall rules on the endpoints, do you also need the same firewall rules in the middle? And if so, why? You said technical debt, right? Now, if something's broken, there's a communication's broken. We've got many more places that we need to check and find out where the problem is. Well, Ken and Brett, I'm glad you guys are here to solve all of this for us today on this podcast. <laughs> 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 So, okay, let's start at the beginning then. How do you begin breaking this down? Do do we do we want to start having the component the the human aspect uh that part of the solution first or do we want to start talking about how to like model an application and coming up with its component parts?
1: We could talk about the modeling uh aspect first, you know, the, the cultural there's just more tips and tricks and, you know, aligning incentives. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, you need an organizational buy-in one way or another, you know. I, I think it's really most of the, the answer there is just generic in nature, right? How, how do you bend an organization to your will? <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> that sounds really manipulative, Ken. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> get the evil, evil villain. Yeah, laugh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's start, with, let's start with modeling. Uh, in uh, my my imaginary scenario in the intro, I made mention of using a sniffer because sometimes that's what I've had to resort to. If I can't find any clear documentation, you know, FirePort, Wireshark, what is this, this box talking on anyway and kind of going from there? Yuck. Uh, what do you recommend for modeling? How do I figure out ports and IP addresses and such?
1: Yeah, the 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 hard work is still there. That's the un, the unfortunate truth. You still... The idea should be in that cultural shift. You should educate your consumers to kind of understand, and if they're going to have to take ownership, ideally they're they're going to actually want to know because they're actually associated with this risk profile of the you know of what they're doing. You know, right now I think there's such a disaggregation; it's lobbed over a fence, and it, they're not associated with it. So, um, I, I often talk, to, you know, with customers about simple things like um, no longer allowing you know the firewall request forms to come in as an Excel spreadsheet that's not it's not um, uh, enforced. There's no kind of data enforcement uh, you know model enforcement in that spreadsheet. You could put a, a subnet where there should be an IP address, an IP address where there's a subnet, et etc, et etc. Um, and really what that does is to uh, w- what I want to see is the requests are saying, I don't know how to fill this 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 ticket out, so I'm going to call you and we're going to fill it out together, but the the firewall the security engineer shouldn't be the one always just fixing all the issues. But nonetheless, you still you're still fundamentally left with, you know, having to help people profile their their traffic.
0: Okay. I think there's an important point here. You're saying the security engineer shouldn't be the one responsible for fixing all the problems. They may have the technical know-how to do so, but you're saying don't just let someone toss you a kind of a half baked exactly. request. Work right. with them to get it right. So is that an educational thing you want them yeah, to kind of understand what they're doing?
1: Yes, it's education with enforcement. And, and the, the easiest way to like to think about it is like in your ITSM or ServiceNow, you know, basically saying here's the format of what you can put the, the 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 data in. You can't just put an Excel spreadsheet, which doesn't enforce anything, you know, as much as you try, it doesn't actually enforce anything. And if you can't fill this out, here's the other ticket that says request an hour with a security engineer. But fundamentally the person is not gonna the, the security engineer is not going to type anything in to these re- these, these these requests anymore. Right, and so just getting that person to to change it from the you know like who's groveling for who's you know help, right? And so when you, the security engineer has to grovel for the requester's help to you know to fill out fill out correctly and to say well you put in an IP address that doesn't make sense here that's a public IP okay it's NATed okay let's figure that out you know whatever those you know hundreds of different questions it's really just saying literally who's typing it and in that in that process of having the requester typing out. Ideally, you have people that are requesting, not all the time, but somewhat regularly, and they learn throughout that process.
2: Yeah, I will will say, as as network engineers, IT infrastructure engineers, um, one of the things you always, in most organizations, there's some form of uh, disconnect between that part of the organization and the application developers or the people purchasing and acquiring applications and installing them. And one of the things that I've seen work well is, just assuming good intent and not uh, in the sense of when if you do get that form that's not completely filled out you go back to the other other party and you ask them to to populate it their answer a lot of times may be i don't know how can i find this out and and being able and and how to find that out may vary depending on the the organization but being prepared inside your organization to say oh you need to go talk to Joe so-and-so who stood up an application like this a couple months back, go talk to them and see how they figured out what this looked like. Or, you know, those kind of things where you are, it's organizationally dependent, but you're building those breadcrumbs and you're building those relationships across with the other parts of the organization. Traditionally, it's been a lot of Excel sheet flinging of, we just need these ports open, or this application's getting installed on Tuesday open all the ports on all protocols. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, as a security engineer, you know, you're like, that's my butt on the line now. We need to have a conversation. And, and so it's starting to shift some of that, you know, Excel sheet tossing that's been happening to really being more conversational.
0: Something just clicked for me here. When we're making the point about, okay, don't fill it out for them, go back to them. I'm still thinking in my mind, I'm going to call them and we're going to fill it out together. Cause I'm the one who's got the answers and I'm going to say, yeah, here's what you meant. You meant, you know, this, you meant whatever, and then help them fill it out. But you're, you guys are saying even push it back further and say, don't give them the answers. Even if you think, you know, you really want them to find resources within the organization so that there is an ownership Coming from someone else, uh, giving you that authoritative information of what should be used to build the policy.
2: Yeah, exactly. If it's coming from somewhere else in the organization or the vendor, I mean, in a lot of cases in a large enterprise today, you're seeing applications that are acquired from a vendor. If it's you know whatever that 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 large SaaS provider may be, they usually will give you that whoever's bringing that application in a cut sheet of ports and protocols. Be like, hey, go find that cut sheet of relevant ports and protocols for your SaaS product that you're trying to bring into the organization so you can fill this form out. I mean, so it's about directing them to those resources rather than being the resource.
1: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think, you know, um, yeah, definitely directing them and you know, ultimately you will get into the point. I'm not, I don't want to sit there and say, you're, you know, you're, you're going to be dogmatic about it and, and, and say, no, I'm not going to answer your question. If it's just reminding them, you know, you, you need to put the network to subnet, not the IP. You can't use zero or you can't use that one for a slash 29 network. You need to put the dot zero. <laughs> Because that just doesn't make you know sense in the networking world, right? So simple things like that. Of course, um, actually, interestingly, I, I kind of hit it a little, probably about two or three organizations in a row where they had specific people around. Like um, it was like a cross, do, cross knowledge, cross domain team that was there for things like so this exact problem, like the security problem, but also like cloud, like how to build your applications, like how to build applications in the you know in the cloud world. And one of the the parts that they were owning was the, this this act the idea of security, right? And so how how do you actually this is the group you go to to advise? They're just an advisory board essentially, and they just produce content like for the application teams to say this is how you develop in the cloud, this is how you secure your cloud applications, and you know and, and in private or, inter- or public cloud that's less relevant, but more of the understanding and but just this cross domain team that has a network resource a programmer, a, you know, a security like all those different kind of components. And they, they all had like absolutely like they all raved about it. Like, you know, even when things weren't perfect, they all just said that things are much better with this kind of dedicated model to help people and just knowledge share basically with them.
0: Uh, Practically speaking, you can get into some different conversations in a group like that, because depending on what viewpoint you're coming from, you don't think in terms of IP addresses. And and some of that's even percolated up into filtering products, right? Like if you look at VMware NSX, the way they filter is with groups tagging, you know, it's, it's happening at a much higher level that eventually that system will translate into IP addresses and policy that they shove into endpoints for you. But policy is not written or expressed in terms of IP addresses. So does that Happen? Does that kind of conversation happen in groups like this?
1: Absolutely, and and you're you're hitting, you know, one of the points here, which is um, like, you know, Kubernetes, like the the intra intercommunication between an application is not really expressed in IPs. The IPs can be arbitrary, right? So that's not even expressed there. A lot of these things don't actually have. IPs or you know even FQDNs with them associated with them. So there's a lot of these. This is a lot of part of the data model challenges. It's no longer just a a a five tuple. There's a lot of other things to consider. Uh, Things like if your if your application should should be able to scale out, how does the rule adjust with it? What is that kind of you know in in, again in, in the container world where there are no IPs you know preemptively they're not like statically assigned. It can be brought on a different cluster and it can have different IPs locally. You can no longer express it within a a standard, you know, IP, right? And so there's, you know, I know, like in you know in Palo Alto they have like EDLs, external dynamic lists, which are just like you just point to it and then you manage that 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 separately. And these are all things that are, you know, maybe to get back onto the the tech, some of the technical modeling challenges. These are all things that make it very difficult, right? And in, in in the new world, it's making it very hard to kind of navigate. So when you you know just to kind of uh, tack on to to those you know, you can have things like URL-based ACLs, right? Like you, you want to block it to a specific URI because sometimes you have like a load balancer mm-hmm. and there's 10 applications behind that load balancer, just your URI, you know, um, load balance. I mean, I'm, I'm forgetting the word there, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's your app, you know, like I know several, most vendors, most firewall vendors now have beyond the port, the app ID, right? They have not just the, the CP port, it's not just 53, it's UDP, you know, it's not just UDP 53, it's DNS, mm-hmm. which is slightly different. Making sure that mm-hmm. you're not able to kind of like tunnel over that protocol. So all of there's these layer
0: things, seven awareness, you're, you're saying
1: there's layer seven awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across that's that's probably a more succinct way of saying it. And so all these things complicate what that data model looks like.
0: Well, let's Ken, let's let's take a simple example then of of a data model rather than. You know, we're kind of modeling what models are. (laughs) We're super meta right now. If we're to to take an example, uh, a a simple example, maybe we should start with something as straightforward as uh, as five tuple, and then build from there. What what would that data model look like?
1: Yeah, I want to stay away from a little bit of the five tuple for a second, right? And so let's but let's go to I don't know uh, the the three parts of it. Meaning, how I would identify an application. Maybe something like, you know, just your traditional three-tier application, you know, web app and uh, database, right? And so what I would have to do there is I would have to say, I'm just defining myself as an endpoint, right? And so I would define my, you know, just just start with the database, right? And say the database says 1536 and my IP or my hosts of IPs, right? This is the cluster of IPs of which I could be on.
0: So, so. Again, but the big thinking here is endpoint, and it's it's very hard. I don't know. Still in my brain, I always think about IPs, but we need to forget about IPs from because
2: they're sort of irrelevant. From they matter. The the way application development has evolved in the last decade or so, all the struggles that like I, I I've been dealing with these problems for for you know fifteen years now, and 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 what I've seen is. The application developers have cared less and less about IP addressing each year. <laughs> like Every year, it's iteratively become... And it didn't start out big to begin with. And, and so like their way they develop the applications is just assuming that the network level, that transport will be there, and there will be an IP address, and they don't care what it is. And where I think we're getting to now as security practitioners and, and networking engineers is trying to adapt our tool set to that mindset of how they've been developing applications where the IP doesn't matter and you know all that matters is the service level things of this port and this protocol yeah. it doesn't matter where it lives on the network because the application developers don't care when they're building locally they just spin it up and it's on localhost or they're developing in their 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 you know their their kubernetes cluster somewhere and it gets an arbitrary IP and they get an FQDN and they go to town Um, And that's where I think now we've, it's really hard to break that mindset of thinking about the five tuple of, I need an IP or a network and I need this, where you get to, we're just playing catch up in some ways to where the application development has gone based on the technology that's available.
0: You said service discovery, and that was the magic word to me. As I've been digging into Kubernetes, that's where so much of the magic lies. It's like, oh, this is service discovery. If your service discovery process were to break down within your Kubernetes application platform, you're screwed. Um, you're everything relies yeah. on, on service discovery, probably DNS and, and pulling things out of etcd that direct you to where the thing is, but what the thing is that you're getting hold of happens at a much higher level than IP. That's like, oh, well, yeah, it has an IP. I don't care what it is. I'm going to use service discovery to tell me that. It's probably going to change a lot over time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I go back to the old, the old analogy of, my name is Brett. I will answer to Brett. Regardless of if I live in this house or I move 10 houses down the street, I'm still Brett. My mail will come addressed to Brett and I'll open it and answer it, but I'll just be living at a different address. I mean, it's, it's that, that very simple disaggregation that we in the, in, in looking at firewall five tuple and putting in permit IP one dot blah, dot blah. It, we, we've just been very monofocused on that for so long. It's hard to pull up and think about it in that way. But still going back to
0: modeling then and trying to express what we're so used to that, that IP yeah. oriented mindset can, um, you're describing something that's a thing, an endpoint generically that has attributes of some IP addresses, probably. Correct. I mean, of course, yeah, It
1: Eventually, equates to some, you know, you know, IP and a minimum, you know, layer seven, as you kind of you know mentioned before, you know, depending on the, on the level of depth. But I, I think like you, know, when we when we talk about like uh, when you first get introduced to networking, you talk about like you know, IP, you know, classless and classful routing. Like you know, nobody actually uses classful routing, right? Like that's just the way of the dodo, right? But it's just. The idea, just to simplify it, we kind of tend to talk about it. And if we just go back to like simplify and go back 15 years when you know, ESX was first introduced, right, That was or, or virtual, virtualized hosts were introduced, and we still stick with the IP and port just to keep things simple. And then just know that anytime there's an IP in port, there's all these other challenges because that could be very dynamic from FQDNs, Apple IDs, et cetera, et cetera. But if you if you go back to the idea of like you have a um, uh, an SQL server and um, there the you 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 define your application to sit there and say well, well my SQL server is 1536 on, on IP 10111, right? That is part your part to define this application. Just saying this is who I am, right? This is how I receive um, uh, access. Right. and then on the app server, you're going to sit there. You're going to have, you know, maybe some uh, HTTP, HTTPS for an API server, of some sort, and you start saying, "This is we'll call it, um, you know, uh, you know, widget app, right?" And so, widget app, uh, which <laughs> sorry for the redundancy, but widget app as an application server talk to widgets uh, SQL. You can de- you define those two as two separate things under one larger ecosystem of this defines the application holistically. Here are the different components within that application. And now I could sit there and say from my widget app server, which is this IP, 10.1.1.2, I want to make a connection to the widget app, uh, or sorry, widget SQL, which is 10.1.1 on 1536.
2: And where I've seen, and so what I've seen in the past is organizations take the approach of, for example, if they're trying to build this information, they either sniff the network for the traffic that's going, or they, they port scan this infrastructure and say, what ports are listening? If I sweep every IP in there, all right, this must be a SQL server. It's listening on this port. This must be a web server. It's listening on that port. But it still only gets you half the answer. Because the other half of the answer is not just what to comprise that application. What ports is this particular piece of the infrastructure listening on? What is that piece of the infrastructure talking to? Where is it going? So in our model, Brett, we've got... All the, the, the listeners,
0: if you will, on one mm-hmm. side, would you say that's one part or one
2: I don't know, one set of key value pairs, maybe yes. to describe be, it that way in our policy? These are the or, the the services that we're listening for in this yeah. portion of the application. And then it also keys up to here are the services we need to reach out to. What well, here are the services we communicate out to, or the other portions of the application structure depends on the model exactly how you can break that down. You can say A lot of it sometimes gets into, you you can really get down into like a database modeling problem of how I want these keys to relate or whatever. And it's it's more generic than that. And a lot of people dive into that kind of level of it. But it's more generic of almost even, I have this unit of infrastructure. It listens for these services. It needs to talk to these other units of infrastructure on these ports and services. And how that gets expressed in the model is usually about the the endpoints themselves. How do they the elements of the infrastructure? How how do they communicate? And that's that's what you're trying to model.
1: Yeah, really. That's what it is you have just two two kind of primary large bucket item components, which is the service or application definition, and then the connectivity between them. Right. So if we go back and just take the take that example, right. So the application server, you need to define even like if you have like a zero trust model, you actually need to define. Between this app, like between components of the app, how do they communicate? So you have two application definitions, right, in a in an app server, and an SQL server within the same app ecosystem. And then you can connect them and say, well, this one should talk from A to B, not B to A, right? I don't need to talk 1536 to the app server. I need to talk 1536 to the, the SQL server, right? But then the application has to, the app server, presumably everything needs LDAP. Right. So you need to define someone had to have already defined LDAP as a service or as an, as an application, expose that. And you need to say from, you know, widget app, I need to talk to, you know, uh company LDAP service.
0: So, so does, does my endpoint model have just listeners and then it's a separate table in my, uh, a separate hierarchy in my model that describes the relationships, the in and out that's allowed? Right. Exactly. Yes.
1: Okay. Exactly. And there are endless amounts of complications in in that because right away, it's like, okay, I have already a hierarchy within the application. And the things that I've already kind of touched on one, which is the different components of it, like I shouldn't allow my end users to talk to SQL directly, right? So they should only be able to talk to the front-end web service, right? So I actually have to break out and then sit there and say, Here's my definition within the same app ecosystem. This is all the things that make up the app. So I have a hierarchy already, right? And to say this is the the entry point for users, this is the entry point for developers to actually go directly to the SQL server. And I have to define them differently. I have to even within the app, I have to define the relationships, assuming a zero trust model. You know, I've seen organizations just forego that and say in intra, like they just put an app per subnet or an app per you know cluster and just leave it open. Right, because it's it's a bit more realistic for the amount of data you have to kind of consume. But nonetheless, just just go the the full
0: full so, way. some and, filtering, but you know, you know, limiting it to scoping it to local subnets, but not being right. more granular like down to ports or individual endpoints within those subnets.
1: Yeah, within them. Yeah, within it. It's like you have an app. Like basically, it's like this is your unit of work. You know, this is your place to do your playground. You, we will your new app, new wedge app. We sign you a new slash. You know, twenty-five or something like that. All your everything goes within that slash twenty-five, and you can, you have a playground which you can you can communicate unrestricted within there. Nothing goes in or out of that subnet without being you know vetted through some kind of process, some some filtering uh, component.
2: Yeah, and in practice, I've seen a sort of combinations of that model, and I, and there are pros and cons to each of those depending on the compliance requirements in place and and, and the security structure in place, and so you see some things where. Uh, Even in a single application, if there's a a lab, a QA, or like a dev, a QA, and a production instance, there may be the production may actually have more stringent port and, you know, have the blocking among the elements of the application and the need to document that. Whereas your development and your QA environment may just be that kind of all-in-one, you're behind a security enclave. And what goes on behind there, we don't care. You, you're this, And that's where sometimes for even a single application, there might be different entries in your application dictionary for the different environments, for the, the QA one or the production or what have you.
0: Which is a trade-off position. There's, there's an element exactly. of operational, being able to, to, to run this in, a, uh, in an operational environment, being able to just keep up with day-to-day with, well, that is not zero trust. That is not you know, true micro-segmentation where we're pushing a firewall rule set into each endpoint and being super granular about it. So they talk about the, uh, the crunchy outside and the nougaty center. It's a little bit of a nougaty center there with this model, but the ba- on balance, it's a bit of a, of a trade-off where it's a little more
2: practical to run in that world, but malware and such becomes a little riskier. Yeah, you start to have to do a lot of the, the organizations where I've seen this kind of thing succeed have very mature security models because they've had to because they've had breaches, they've had security incidents where they need to. They really they understand the, the stakes here of how to operate and and the aspirational goals are that zero trust style model, but they still have a legacy estate that is in the state it's in and it, it has these open rules that no one owns or whatever, and it's about that. Trying to make a transition of having a plan of i want to get from a to z this is a framework for navigating that transition
1: yeah i absolutely think the the rate of failure with the amount of data goes up substantially right just by saying zero trust or not that could you know two, three, four, x the amount of data you need to cut and kind of control and thus it's that much more fragile that much more like no one actually understands the system so you know in, in the pursuit of more security you may end up less secure. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it's a level of maturity. I I often see, I've seen every organization go through the segmentation path, um, or many organizations say, and they parse out all the apps to slash 28, slash 29, this, that, the other thing. And we're like, okay, we're going to get it in place in the new data center, and then we're going to turn on filtering. And it never happens because it's just too much. No one could ever do it. And they they try to take on too much at once, right? I, I was rather saying, like, let's just at least put the proper choke point in front of the data center, step one. Step two, let's segment it to the subnet. Step three, zero trust. And that's that's realistically a multi-year
0: journey. Pausing the episode for a quick ad spot about something cool we packet pushers are doing. On April 22nd, 2021, we're live streaming with Alkira. Alkira is a cloud networking vendor, and to them, cloud networking isn't just connecting your users to the cloud. It is also about end-to-end governance and policy management, transitioning to multi-cloud, supporting data center migrations, security delivered by a cloud firewall, and zero-trust posture. And that Alkira feature set, that means they think they've got an alternative to SD-WAN and MPLS. Ooh, that's a big claim. So is Alkira really all that? Well, that's what we're going to talk through in the live stream. Help make this discussion great by showing up and asking your questions. Now you need to register for the event so you can participate, but the way we do it, no one will follow up with you unless you opt in to be contacted. To register for the live stream with the Packet Pushers in Alkira happening April 22nd, hit packetpushers.net slash live That's packetpushers.net slash live That will redirect you to a Zoom webinar reg page. And from there, you know what to do. Thank you for being a part of our community. And we hope to see you virtually on April 22nd. We paused the podcast discussion today so that I can train you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually not going to train you right now. What I am going to do is talk about heavy networking sponsors, CBT Nuggets, and they will train you. I care a lot about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I began. All the way back in 1995, I started my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training has never stopped for me. Sometimes I'm going for a cert, and sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I'm always learning something to deliver the best networks I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, and that's not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. So for example, let's say you're getting into network automation now. CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I've been reviewing the DevNet blueprint material from Cisco and I can tell you you're going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them because DevNet material it isn't like learning a new routing protocol it's learning how to manage infrastructure as code and unless you used to be a dev you don't know what you're doing. Or maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that needs to get stuck into the CBT Nuggets training for DevNet stuff. Anyway, there is so much more there than DevNet training. I've spent some time with the CBT Nuggets interface, and it's easy to navigate. On the videos I sampled, the audio and video quality have been excellent, and the instructors were easy to understand, and they were personal and engaging. They were not formal and boring. And there might have even been a cowboy hat involved. There are, Actually, yeah, there was definitely a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there Is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material. They got virtual labs that are there, they got accountability coaching there. And I I need to shut up now and get to the part that you care about the most: the special offer, free stuff you get from CBT Nuggets because you listened to this entire spot, you awesome human. First, visit cbtnuggets.com/slash heavy networking. There, you will find that CBT Nuggets is running a free learner offer. They've made portions of their most popular courses. Free. All you gotta do, sign up with your Google account, start training it. That's it. This is a great way for you to give CBT Nuggets a try. Now, as a bonus, everyone who signs up as a free learner is going to automatically be entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription to CBT Nuggets. So just, just go do it. cbt nuggets.com/slash heavy networking. That's cbt nuggets.com/slash heavy networking. This this is a no-brainer. And now back to the podcast that I so rudely interrupted. So so we've talked about a lot of the challenges here building the data model because of the realities of operating a data center, operating a computing environment. All right. With the model, that's just a model. All we've done is express endpoints, listeners, and then relationships between these endpoints, what should be allowed to and from these various endpoints on these various ports. And we've done it as a model so we would describe that model in this context as our source of truth where does that live or maybe maybe it doesn't matter for purposes of this conversation but what does that look like is that a json sitting in i don't know uh, some kind of a, a database repository or an, a netbox or something
1: yeah so i think you fundamentally need a database to to back end it no matter how you're going to you're going to approach this it's too much data to 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 to, you know, use in traditional infrastructure as code YAML style. It's just way too much data to raise me.
2: And the relationships are key, which is where it's kind of one of those perfect use cases for everybody loves, you know, keeping these in YAML or talking about NoSQL databases. But this is really an instance where we care about the relationships and sticking this in a a SQL database of some kind is key to making this function. Because you, when you go to do things with this, you have this data. We want to take action and build policy. You care about the relationships when you're building that policy. So we're not
0: well. We we could be talking about JSON at least as as part of what's happening. You can store JSON in SQL, but I mean, really, we're talking about traditional SQL tables with a schema, keys, and then relationships between those tables. Absolutely,
1: and strict enforcement of all that data because it's too much data to have without. And, like I would argue, to like never pursue a, a non you know a non relational database in in this effort
2: and i think what we what we talked about though now like to your point i think we were going to this we we talked about the data problem we talked about this what do we do with this now that we have it how do we express policy with this like so, yeah. you you know we you, because you can't sell this to your your leadership in an organization without the the where, where's the rubber meet the road and and i think that's where once you have the data in a state in a system where you can trust it that's where automation starts to really come into play for expressing policy um, and you can do that with something you build yourself. You can do that with off-the-shelf vendor tools. I've, I've been in environments where we've done sort of a mixture of the both, where there are products out there by uh, by third-party vendors that will help you uh, set firewall policy. They'll look at all your firewalls or look at the cloud infrastructure and all that and be able to push policy to it, and what you can do is use this data. Perhaps you have to build something in the middle to You know create your policy from the data and push it to those systems but you can essentially offload some of that heavy lifting to a third-party system if your automation in your environment isn't that far advanced yet and things like that there's a lot of a lot of options with what to do with the data once you get it well okay but once i've got it it's living in my sql database and
0: of course i've designed the schema very well and i've got my relationships just nailed down in between the tables in my database Now I've got a structure that I can programmatically query. You can pull data out of a SQL database in a million ways. Uh, Python, if you wanted. Okay, I do that. And now I've got this structured data that I can use. And then I've got some abstraction uh, library I'm using within Python to turn this SQL data and relationships into a firewall policy that I could expressly push into some specific device I've got on my network, a Juniper SRX or a... Uh, some kind of a Cisco box. They've got 20 different firewalls now and, and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, w- what I'll say is that there, you have to translate from one model to another, right? So you have your standardized model. And if you think about having different adapters per, for different uh, and, and types of endpoints, and so what I mean by that types of endpoints are, you know, Palo Alto, you know, firewalls or Kubernetes, you know, whatever, or AWS, those become like the the model translations you need to create. So I have some definition of an application, I have some definition of connectivity, but th- that means nothing to the policy, mm-hmm. the actual configuration policy. So you need and that that policy and that that uh, sorry that model that gets created and used to generate configuration either via you know, ginger style you know in, you know pushing configurations like on a Cisco IOS ACL on a, mm-hmm. just a router. You can deck that's a perfectly reasonable security enforcement choke point for many use cases. Or it might be a, an API call to a Palo Alto firewall or you know whatever the, the various different methods are. So you essentially need a model translation, which is that abstraction point you're talking about. So you translate from the the model created for your internal applications connectivity to translate to the configuration in the specific adapter to the specific vendor implementation.
0: I think the magic words here that uh, one of you guys wrote in the notes here build artifact. I gotta build create Build
1: artifact. I love I, you know I got credit John Anderson who 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 Brett and I work with uh you know principal network to code. Um we were talking about I, I it wasn't exactly this but we were talking about it and he just said it just sounds like a build artifact you're talking about like just nonchalantly I'm like that's a the perfect term for it. So um and it really is it's just the you're you're not managing the configuration. That's just the configuration. Is just a build artifact of what the model that you built, you're, you're building.
0: The configuration is the boring part. It's the it thing is. we have. It to, really is. <laughs> it is. We we've got to express what's in the model, the relationships, the policy that's been agreed upon into a build artifact. But it's kind of like it's it's Palo or it's Checkpoint or it's Fortinet yeah. or it's Cisco, whatever. <laughs> you know, it, we've got to get that policy in there so that it's enforced. Yeah, who cares how. Give me the right adapter. Here's the data. Go forth and make your build artifact and push it out, and then we can make sure it's at which you could do. Would you do that with a pipeline, or what would your process be here?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be. You know, I I think we all love to get to that pipeline auto deploy kind of feature, you know, or or capability. I should say Uh, it's very hard to get to. I think more realistic is, uh, and and, you know, just just sorry, quick plug. Like I, I did a presentation at Nanog recently. Where I talked about pretty much what you said, which is configuration is the boring part. Don't automate that first, anyway. And, and, and part of the reason is culturally, I, no one's going to jump into the pipeline, right? So crawl, walk, run here, and I, I, you just need to like publish the configuration. At in my opinion, you need to publish the configuration to the engineer to actually go deploy. Even if that's mainly deploying it first, it really is the smallest amount of the effort is just applying the configuration. <laughs> that's and, so true. <laughs> and, and <laughs> so I, true. I, 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 the, the greatest trick I've ever pulled is that automation is about configuration management, you know, or primarily even like it, it's to me, it's, it's, that's the last mile. Um, but anyway, so I'll, I'll get off my soapbox for a second, but culturally, I just think it makes sense to build towards the the auto deployment. Once you're so bored of, of just pasting in whatever they, the the tool tells you to, to paste in, but you need to build up that confidence. And this is a journey. This is um, realistically one of the 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 big holes in this strategy is there is it's hard to get to actually get value out of it, right? This is very much a waterfall delivery model. not completely. like there's there's wins along the way, but there is a bit of a waterfall kind of mentality here.
2: and and that's where I've seen the it's a, to your point, it's a journey. And the organization and it takes organizational discipline and it takes organizational buy-in to do this. And in a lot of cases, I've only seen organizations really take off a bite of this and decide that they're going to go down this road when they have a very cogent reason. They've had a security breach. They're coming under a new compliance regime of some kind. That's, there's some external impetus that says to the IT organization, we need to fix this. And we're committed to this multi-year journey to fixing how we manage our security policy. Um, Without that kind of external pressures, usually, you don't see it succeeding in an organization. Because there can be an engineering team that says, this is how we're going to shift our management of firewall policy. We're going to do these things. But without some sort of pressure or buy-in from the highest levels in that organization, you don't see it go to fruition in the same way.
0: There's another way to sell this, though, um, that I think maybe helps with that organizational buy-in. One of the challenges uh, I, we alluded to earlier in the show... Over time, these policies need to change and grow and, and hey, is anyone using firewall rule 142 anymore? I don't know. We haven't had any hits against it for a while, but et cetera, et cetera. How do you get that ownership established? And what I'm seeing here, when you go through this process to get this data model built, one of the bits of metadata you could assign to that is either a group or some human that owns this thing. And so when you do your periodic security audits, because of course we're all doing those, aren't we? Of course we are. You can check in with that human and go, uh, you could, I'm I'm imagining something here. You could generate a report that in a human way expresses what's in that database table set of relationships and go, is this still true? Do we need to change anything? Can we restrict this, change it? What, What needs to be updated so that we're
2: current? And that's the kind of thing where the automation is key. And, you know, Ken's talking about the pushing the config to the device is the boring part, the very last thing to automate. Before then, you need to automate that part of the policy process of, here are the 10,000 firewall rules on this firewall. Here are the 3,000 different owners inside the business. Go email them and wait for a response. If there's no response, email their boss. You know, those kind of things where you have, not necessarily email is necessarily the best way, but there's all kinds of ways to automate that. But that's where you put process automation process to those policies of shifting that load out where people know that oh security review time is coming it's no longer just the security engineer you know shaking his head and pounding it on the desk it, that email or that that effort goes out to everyone when every time that that process comes around
0: well and it comes back to organizational buy-in as well because you yeah. have to have some teeth in that review process something like this bit of metadata says you folks are responsible for this if you don't give us some feedback that this is or is not needed. We're going to assume it's not needed. We're removing this from the policy and these communications will be denied. If you're okay with that, that you don't have to do anything. If you're not okay with that, you better let us know what's up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think you hit on a few things there. So I I really think one one of the things to understand is one one of the the goals to get towards is to, in that journey of educating people, at the end state, you ideally can can remove a lot of education or it's not needed, I should say. Fair way, meaning really application owners want to speak in terms of apps. They don't want to speak in terms of five tuples. And this actually allows you to get to that and to, to, to express things in the way businesses speak, which is I need access to LDAP, not I need you know, 10.20.20.20, you know, a third 389 or whatever the uh, LDAP port is, I'm forgetting. That is fundamentally not the way the business works, and that's not their goal is to speak in those terms. And so this is getting you towards that that, that back to that. That original ask, which is, you know, I talked to many application people so which just say, I don't know it's so hard. I simply want to, you know, I just want LDAP access. It's like, well, but who, who owns that? Who's the owner of that information? And to the to the the application folks, it's the the security team because they're the ones they're interfacing. But it, it it shares that ownership, it assigns ownership to people. And you know, one of those things that like in that lifecycle uh, ownership is things that to, to to consider things like who who allows approval? Like LDAP is a wide open system, like everyone's gonna need it. They don't want me sitting there saying yes every time you know somebody comes across, but other applications are going to be very much controlled, and they want approval. They want you to sit there and come to them, and they want to review. And so having this data allows you to actually build in those processes you know, based on all this metadata that, that we're talking about.
2: And, and one of the things we're sort of dancing around, and, and where I've seen the success or failure of some of these kind of projects happen, is folks with a, a very well-defined and mature ITSM solution in place, if they're using... ServiceNow, or whatever it may be, where they are already using the policy and process enforcement mechanisms of that tool. This is just another thing that gets added in, where, you know, in addition to approving, say, group membership or this change ticket, there's an approval flow of, I'm approving this firewall rule to continue to work or whatever, where, you know, th- that's very helpful where you hook into any existing ITSM approval flows like that. So you're not having to reinvent that wheel as well.
1: Yeah. Additionally, that, that's you know, it, it like um, I, I don't want to make it seem like this is just so pie in the sky. Like I, you know, one of the points I want to get to is it is definitely a crawl, walk, run thing to to get to this point. And I think one of the the most obvious points is to just just you know, even if you stay with the five tuple kind of methodology uh, and actually deploy your configurations via automation or to, to generate your configurations via automation and then push them, that really goes a long way in. You know, solving a lot of challenges, which is standardized configuration, right? One of the huge benefits for any automation is that standardized configurations. And you can't parse something, you can't reasonably parse something if the configurations aren't standardized. And so simple things like, you know, Brett uses dashes and I use underscores, that is going to break your parsing or you're going to make it very fragile process to kind of understand how people put comments. And so introducing the, the path I tend to talk to customers with is you know, uh this is the this is the the future, but you need to get your 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 basic configuration in shape and ready to be prepared to actually make this a reasonable venture in, in which you could go and say within three to six months, I could actually do the basic things via an application dictionary. But the problem is is where it becomes so difficult is when your configuration, you have to, you know, deconstruct your configuration first, just to normalize your configuration to actually make it automatable. Rain, so dude,
0: you just said you're saying so much right there. This is such a big chunk. I'm like, I'm sighing and shaking my head, and you know, and so on, thinking about this part. We've all been through it, right? The the big like, let's say you're new in, new to an environment, and, and you're you're an engineer walking into this environment. I've been there several times, and you you, okay, time to look at the the firewalls, and it's a train wreck of rules and and different ways they were expressed, and the order doesn't make a lot of sense, and a lot of them have no hits, and. You're trying to get it to a point where you can actually do something with it, and it's predictable, and you trust it, and and so on. That's huge to do that normalization.
1: Absolutely, it's it's a foundational block, and so yeah, you know, a term I often use is stop the bleeding, which is like from here on out, no more no more bad rules, right? And unfortunately, some poor poor soul has to go back and you compose fifty thousand you know rules out there and say are they valid or not, and you have to make some reasonable guesses, and you have to try to find some owners. But if you don't, if you don't stop the bleeding, if you don't build that audit process for the configuration itself, that's really where the the guts of uh, or the, the bulk of the the time to actually make something like an application dictionary useful, right? I mean, I, I think you can get in, in a, you know, let's say post once you actually build your data model, you just kind of, you know, in UML diagrams and so forth, from you know, that point to actually getting some value is you know, probably closer, about six months. But if you have to go and do the data at the same time, that's 18 months, right? So I, I, and and it's, it's hard to show that ROI, right? And so often the strategy we kind of, you know, talk with our customers are is stop the bleeding. Let's just get the ITSM to automation workflow worked out. We know the configurations are normalized and you learn a lot along that process, meaning you learn what all the edge use cases are. You know, this is our policy, this is our standard policy, you know, full stop until you get to the fifth rule. And then they go, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you about that. Oh, I forgot to tell you about that, right? And so there is a lot. And then there is a clear ROI there, meaning um, all the reporting you could build with just the the idea of the five tuple, uh, all of the analysis that you can do to sit there and say, like, um, uh, what's the definition of, of a good rule? And every organization every organization I, I talk to says the same thing. We want to make sure it's a good rule. And like, well, what does that mean to you? And it's like, well, you know. I'm like, <laughs> well, I know what I would say is, but it's not going to be what you're going to say. So why don't you go ahead and tell me and, and then it's always different. It's always different, right? Which is PCI, non-QA, non-QA, et cetera,
0: et cetera. You're hitting on a problem that's common to automation broadly, which is standardization. When when it's a lack of standardization, you've got all these exceptions and weird little corner cases that you're, you've got buried in your configurations. Trying to standardize it is a nightmare. You've got to have that. You've got to be standardized and predictable in your artifacts or... Uh, I don't want to say automation is impossible, but you've just made your job so much more
2: complex. And I think and what people tend to forget when they think about that stand, looking at this you look at this wild west config that has had, you know, keyboard cowboys typing things in in every manner for 10-15 years, you you don't have to tackle all that at once either. And that's where you can start to automate. You know, you look at what's your what element of the configuration like, "Oh yeah, we'll start with all these rules that have rule comments in them with underscores, we're going to change all of those to dashes. And you start to to take bytes out of those kind of things, and that's where you can apply automation to help you do that. Because if it was the olden times, even if somebody hand jamming through line one oh one, this and that, no line one oh two, this and that, and you know, you you don't have to do that by hand. I think a lot of people think that. They can't use the automation until it's standardized. You can use automation to get yourself sure. to a more standard state. Sure, sure. And
1: it goes back to the, to the point of like configuration management is uh, the 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 least fun or least whatever, you know, important, like the reporting to make the configuration is is 10 times more. So actually just going through with a read-only account, doing all your analysis, and then two months later, one time deploying that configuration. Bring You're going to, yeah, and, and, and drop it in. You're going to update that report dozens of times in between uh, and that's really where the automation and the programmatic access is crucial.
0: Okay, we've gone through a lot of material here, gentlemen. There's one thing that we didn't touch on. Going back to the data model, that I that I do want to get a sense of. Um, when we talked about building out the application profile at a high level and like the listener ports and the relationships and there's some IPs in there, what about policies that don't care about those things that were, you know, IPs and ports specifically, because they're filtering maybe up at layer seven. Does that somehow become part of our data model too?
1: Absolutely. It's a crucial part. and And, and it becomes like, you know, it, it could be. You you have like this idea of required one of, and those and those attributes could be thing like an external dynamic list, uh, an NSX tag ID or tag, uh, an IP, a, 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 a container service discovery. Like you, that's the whole that's the crux of part of the, the 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 solution, right? Which is removing that as as a required field is fundamentally one of those things that you have to get to, right? So an IP address is probably you know for the foreseeable future is always going to be part of one of those 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 points, one of those service definitions, and more abstract, not talking any specific product, but more abstract service definitions. So like uh, widget SQL, as I mentioned before. But the the important part is that you have the service definition, and that's just a specific attribute of a specific type on it.
2: Okay. Yeah, and in the model, you can have Layer 7 attributes that you really care about. So, for example, i uh, worked with a client uh, in the past that they've managed a lot of WordPress installs for people. And they wanted no IPs, but their IPs to be accessible to the slash WP admin URI. And, and so that's a policy you can enforce with some vendors' security products. Yep. That had to be modeled into how we were going to model the policy was understanding layer seven URI elements so that we could express firewall policy that way. So, I mean, when you start to talk about what defines an application, you can get very precise in layer seven information like that, and you need to account for that in the model.
1: This is one of the things too. Is that I, I um, one point to hit on here is I I really feel like the 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 firewall like a, a, a solution like this is is very personal, and so the only thing that's going to the only thing that's going to come to the market, quote unquote, you know, air quotes there, is um, something that allows tremendous amount of flexibility in that data model because people, organizations just look at their the way their apps are uh, modeled or or, or or distributed and built very differently, and so you know, DR, QA, you know, like different you know lanes, and environments, it's all very different. So I really think organizations, you know, I, I talk to so many customers that say. Why isn't this out there already? And it's like, because how do you want it? Like, you want it this way? The 12 other organizations had nothing close to that whatsoever. It wasn't even similar at all. And you know, everyone's, what, what most customers are, are saying, or most organizations are saying is, they don't realize it is, I, I want a product that acts the way I, we operate. Not understanding that there's, there's the product's not going to work like that. And what you need to kind of move towards is things that are framework-y. Right. And so things that are frameworker, you know, Ansible is very framework. You get nothing out of the box. ServiceNow is very frameworky. It has, you know, Terraform. These things are not giving you, you know, ServiceNow gives you some things, but really the the crux of what ServiceNow is like you, you can do custom forms and you can do custom CMDB and all this other fun stuff.
0: There there is a, a point of commonality to all of the data models, but the deeper you get into how an organization operates, what their application needs, what their concerns are, it becomes uh, somewhat bespoke. Uh, the the deeper you get, which really leads me to another question. I kind of thought this was the answer I was going to get from you two about the data model as as it gets more complex, which begs the question, who builds the data model? Is it me, the security engineer? Is it a developer? Is it a database administrator? Who does that?
1: It's maybe a, you know, very biased answer. Um, But I, I, you know, I, I fundamentally in my in my you know health you know self-serving opinion you need someone that that bridges the gaps between between those two those worlds right which is they need context of how firewalls have been managed and how programs you know, how, how how to build models and how to build programmatic access and what those requirements are now the actual builder is going to be like the actual you know hands a keyboard like a programmer right somebody that knows you know django flask whatever you're kind of choice of tool is there but the to build the uml diagrams you, you need all sides of that and you need and, and fundamentally what i've seen i think we have even talked about this ethan on the on our you know historically long podcast we did several years ago <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> which is um the idea that if you ask a a if you just put like a network or security engineer and hook them up with a programmer they tend to do whatever the network engineer does which is basically say i want to do what i do faster they don't know how to reimagine the world. to sit there and say, "How do I do it differently?" Mm-hmm. Right? And so that what looks like is you know what I need. Basically, it looks like it's just like a putty session with you know uh, a thousand uh, uh, tabs on it that I could you know paste configs into it. They don't sit there and take a step back because they're just taking direct requirements from the customer. You need someone who who, who dabbles in both worlds and can translate that. In my humble opinion again,
2: yeah I would say It's absolutely. It's absolutely a collaborative effort. The initial building of the data model has to be a combination effort between the elements of the organization there, where you know, and maybe there isn't one person who really understands all of that yet in a given organization. you You need to groom or build that person, or you need to, you know, work together to say, I have my application architect, I have my security architect. I'm locking them in a room for the next two weeks and they need to build some models for this environment you know whatever that may look like
0: is you need to have a system in place here because i think this model is going to evolve too as you discover new yeah. new things the, the the organization changes you bring a new application in house that has different requirements so that you, it's got to be process whereby you're working with someone who can keep up with you over time. I don't know that that means a dedicated dev, and certainly there is going to be a collaborative effort. You've got stakeholders, you've got people that are really good with databases, you've got people that are good at development, and you've got security engineers that understand what they need at the end, that that build artifact that's got to get created yeah. and so on. So there are there's a lot to it.
1: I could imagine doing this without at least a dedicated person, probably multiple, to manage and maintain this. But the, the reality is as I look at organizations, and you know, I, I talk to, to many, you know, customers or potential customers where they're saying how many rules a month 300 500 600 rules a month they're deploying and it is they have teams i mean 20 30 long like i'm 20 30 people out there so you know the 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 roi there is, is clear and tangible if it's
0: well, there's a couple of payoffs it's it's you get a predictable, standardized uh, security model that, that you can audit in a consistent way. You get reporting out of this. You have a, a nice spread of ownership you know, amongst appropriate groups of people, not like everything on the security person, the security engineer to make it go. It's now spread out amongst stakeholders across the organization. And you have a standard build artifact that you're creating that should look same, same as you're going through the policy and auditing.
1: Into I you know I, I built something like this you know for a, a smaller like just like a single data center kind of like a, but it needed to be ISO 27 that I can't remember what certification was required, and I actually assigned owners to every rule, you know the design wasn't great but it, it worked, and um, I emailed people every three months and said, do you own this rule? And they would promptly not respond back, and I would, you know, just say, okay, I'm going to disable the rule, and then they say, oh, hold on, I, I moved groups, and you know. We eventually get to it but eventually the order came and they're like they want to speak to you I was like, okay no problem and i gave them a spreadsheet of every rule and who owns it yep. and they the, the the conversation basically went down like how'd you get this information and so <laughs> i whipped out my pearl code that, you know i developed you know eight nine ten years ago whatever it was and so and here's this and they're like wow i was <laughs> like well i'm like wait well i understand how else was i supposed to do this and they're like Oh, we don't know. And then they're like, I'm like, well, what do you ask other organizations? So like, they just tell us the process and we just trust that the process works. And I'm like, that was an option. <laughs> that was, it was mind boggling to me. That was an option. And I just spent like, you know, two months building out this entire thing just to manage this, this one data center. So,
0: so many audits that you should have failed, just get swept oh, no, under the rug because ah, we just trust the process. It's I'm we sure trust it's the
1: fine. process, but, but actually be able to go and sit here and say, I mean, they, they, they were like, you know, and they literally got like three, four, five people on the phone just to. Hear me understand this, because they they had not seen anything like this apparently, and but to go and sit there and say, you know, when your audit becomes report, that's it. It's just like it's it's your audit is, is available at all times, and what that means for your organization can be invaluable as well. Like there's a lot of other you know uh, less tangible ROI, but that that ability to do an actual audit is is probably a man year or more to actually do it, if, you, if you're required to, and once you have this system, which again in, in fairness, it's a long journey it's just a, it's a button away.
0: Yeah. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic conversation. This is, I like conversations like this, it's mind expanding in that it challenges you to think about, uh, not just how to do something, but just uh, how to do it differently, rethink your culture, rethink how you interact with other people in the organization, not just be the security engineer, firewall jockey martyr. That's like, these rules are mine. I live under their burden and I shall keep up with them because I'm going to do the right thing. No, it's not actually how this is all supposed to work. You may need to put other systems in place to make it work well, but there are other ways to do it. And we just talked through at some length, a really good way to get it done. Not easy to make happen overnight. It's not going to be it's a journey. We're always on a journey, guys. I don't know why we're always on a journey, but we're, we're, it is a journey. It's going to take some time Next to get gen, there. Next gen, right? Next gen. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So, again, fantastic conversation. Uh, Ken, starting with you, how do people follow you on the internet?
1: Primarily, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter. It depends net. My GitHub is It Depends Network. And, you know, probably the, the place I'm most seen is on our network to code Slack, uh, large community, fellow automation, you know, types, engineers, etc case lens on there
0: fantastic brett same question to you
2: yeah i'm, I'm on twitter i'm at likensb and uh also uh on github likens BD. uh and then uh, same as ken i'm, I'm pretty active on our, our network code slack instance i'm at brett and then uh blog off and on at the network to code blog um you know, same as same as ken there so it's a great place to check out all kinds of things like this where we like to pontificate about uh, the ways and means of doing things just a little bit differently Again, thank you for your time, both of you. Uh, Ken,
0: this was your fault, really, anyway. So it's, you know, (laughs) but I do appreciate the time that both of you made to chat with us on heavy networking today and hope that you out there listening got a lot of value from this It expanded your mind. No doubt you didn't get it all in one shot. You know, listen to it again and send it to your friends and send it to your boss and uh, spread the love of Packet Pushers Heavy Networking to all the network nerds. In your life, if you like shows like this, we got more. The Heavy networking is just like one show in the Packet Pushers podcast network. It has a bunch of other ones. You can listen to me and Ned Balavance, for example, on Day 2 Cloud, talking about cloudy things, and we have a lot of automation discussions there and so on, and Greg Farrow and Drew Conry murray talk about all the news that you would care about over at the Network Break uh, podcast. And anyway, there's more than that. IP Physics buzz, full stack journey. Go to packetpushers.net slash subscribe. And uh, you just get a list of all the different feeds that you can subscribe to. Not no cost to any of those. Just go subscribe and put them in your podcatcher and listen. We're on Twitter at Packet Pushers. And we're on LinkedIn uh, if you want to follow us there. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.